Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. It is very, very, very good to be back. I've been out the last couple of weeks on paternity leave. My wife gave birth to our first child three days before opening day. So obviously exciting times, uh, but with the timing of everything, we did not get a chance to do our typical National League preview podcast we do with Matt Eddy every year. Now I'm back. It's still early enough in the season. We felt like we could still do kind of a, a National League look ahead podcast, if you will, looking ahead at what's to come. Teams have played mostly seven or eight games so far this season, obviously fewer in one very prominent case, but still wanted to get on with Matt and just talk a little bit about the National League, what to expect this year. And Matt, the National League is kind of where it's at. We saw the Dodgers, the defending champions, and the unquestioned best team in baseball go add the reigning National League signing award winner in Trevor Bauer. The Padres had the best offseason of any team, adding Hugh Darvish, Blake Snell, Joe Musgrove, in addition to some other less marquee type additions, but ones that I think are very, very important and have already shown themselves to be very important. In addition to Musgrove already making history for the franchise, we'll get into that. The Mets loaded up. The Braves brought back some key players. I talked about this with JJ on the American League Look Ahead podcast. It does feel like things have shifted. A few years ago, the American League was the superior league. Now we've seen it kind of move into the National League. Yeah, I agree with that. I think a lot of that is the the up-and-coming talent in the National League. Uh, Ronald Acuna, Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis Jr., three of the best, probably the three best young players in baseball. Um, and you have that, plus Francisco Lindor and Mookie Betts coming to the National League. I mean, you have just incredible amount of star power joining the league in the last three or four years. Yeah, I do feel like that's the overarching theme of the National League. I feel like there's an argument to be made that the three best teams in baseball all reside in the National League. And I think pretty strongly that five of the top seven teams reside in the NL. It does feel like this is going to be a dogfight where you can craft a lot of different scenarios for a lot of different teams making a deep postseason run. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Like, who are the American League teams who are in the picture for you? Is it the Yankees and Rays? Uh, well, I said this on the AL podcast with JJ. I think there are only four teams in the American League who are legitimate contenders to reach the World Series, and the Rays are not one of them. I believe it to be the Yankees, White Sox, Twins, and Astros. The Angels are a giant wild card because if Shohei Otani, Griffin Canning, and Andrew Heaney all stay healthy, maybe they have a shot, but it's hard to feel great about that happening given the track record of those guys. Whereas in the National League, I truly feel like I can craft a plausible path to the World Series for eight different teams in this league. And if you wanted to be extra generous and stretch it, you could probably make it nine. I would say I could confidently do it for seven, reasonably do it for eight. And if you stretch it a little bit, you could get to nine because there's star power here. Don't get me wrong. You have at the top the Dodgers, the Braves, the Padres, but even once you start getting into the 6th, 7th, 8th best team in this league, 
there's a lot of talent on these teams. Yeah, I'm kind of glancing at it now. Yeah, I agree. I think you would rule out. I think you would start by ruling out five teams, perhaps. <laughs> and then you're left with nine or ten where it's like, yeah, I could see a way. Yeah, it's a really, really, really strong league, and we're going to dive into it. I want to start in the National League West because that's where the defending champs are. The Dodgers posted the best record in baseball last year. They're on a historic run dating back to 2017, as you detailed for us uh, in an article earlier this offseason. They have the most talent. They have the most depth. They have three Cy Young Award winners, three MVP winners. They have an unbelievable player development system. They have a deep farm system they can pull up from or execute trades with. This is a really, really, really good team, not just in the context of 2021, but I believe it to be a team that has a chance to be one of the greatest of all time. I wrote about this in our Baseball America season preview issue on newsstands now, by the way, starring Francisco Lindor on the cover right before he signed his $341 million extension. So good timing, good decision by Matt, who uh, puts together the cover for us. I do believe this Dodgers team has a very good chance to run down the MLB record of 116 wins in a season. Now that assumes full health. If Walker Bueller's blisters, Clayton Kershaw's back, Julio Urias's shoulder, Corey Seager's hip and elbow, Cody Bellinger's shoulder, Justin Turner's hamstring, if those act up, it's going to be tough. There's no question. But if the team mostly stays healthy, I really do think this has a chance to be a team that wins 114, 116. It sounds absolutely insane to say I could see them winning 118 games. This is a team that has depth so superior to every other team in Major League Baseball in a year where depth is going to be more critical than ever. I think we're going to see some games where the Dodgers are playing some very wounded teams and they're able to just take it to them. Um, yeah, I, offhand, I don't know. What, I, I guess the 1908 Cubs have the National League record, uh, like 114, I believe. Well, they, they are, though. They're 116. The 1908 Cubs and the 2001 Mariners have the record with 116 wins in a season. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I, as much as this team is fantastic, I, you know, I always bet the under on something like that. But, I, you know, I think 105 baseline is safe with this group. <laughs> There's no pushback against that. Yeah, again, it assumes full health. And by the way, I need to uh, issue a correction there. It's the 1906 Cubs, not the 1908 Cubs that won 116 games. And look, it's it's tough. Okay. If, they win, if they win 114 games, are they a failure? Of course not. But you're right, it does seem insane to say that 105 wins would be almost the baseline. And, and on top of that, if all those injuries that I mentioned happen, I still think this team wins 94 games and probably wins a wild card at worst. I mean, the depth they have is truly remarkable. They're the kings of the hill. They're the favorites to win the World Series. The Padres went after them hard in the offseason. Make no mistake about it. Their moves were designed to go run down the Dodgers. Acquiring Blake Snell, Yu Darvish, Joe Musgrove, those were the headliners and deservedly so. But what was very important is the Padres also acquired guys that could fill out the bottom of the roster and give them depth. They signed Ha Sung Kim. We've already seen that be a boon with Fernando Tatis going down with a shoulder injury. And they needed some more bullpen options at the end of games that went out. They signed Mark Melanson. They signed Keone Kella. 
They made the marquee acquisitions, but they also enhanced the depth. Resigning Jerks and Profar was huge for them. He was the unsung hero of their 2020 season in a lot of ways. This is a very, very complete and deep team, and we've seen that already pay off for them. They're seven and three. Fernando Tatis Jr. suffered a shoulder injury. He's had it twice now in the last couple of weeks, a shoulder subluxation. There is concern this will eventually need surgery, and the Potters are just hoping and praying he holds up for the 2021 season because if he does have surgery, it's a five- to six-month recovery. This is a very, very good team that right now does not have Nelson Lamette, does not have Fernando Tatis Jr., but they're 7-3, and three and they're about to go into a series with the Pirates, so in theory, they should be a probably, at the very worst, 10-4 and four going into their first series of the year against the Dodgers. How close are the Padres, and how do you see this division title fight shaking out? Oof, that's a great question. Um, fairly close. I think this is you know, a 100 win team on paper. Um, like you touched on the depth and the star power. Um, there's, there's not an obvious weakness here that you would say oh, they, they must improve this area in order to be a championship contender. So yeah, I, th- I think it's fairly close. Yeah. We're already seeing some of the pitching injuries become a little bit, I want to say an issue, but something they're going to have to address. Adrian Morhone, who has never stayed healthy at any point in his career, left his most recent start after two-thirds of an inning, has the ominous left elbow forearm strain, which we know typically results in Tommy John surgeries. Denelson Lamette has yet to return. So the depth is going to be tested here early, but I still think you look at this team and it's very promising. I think this National League West, it would not surprise me. We talk about the Dodgers being a potentially all-time great team. I think back to the 2001 American League West when the Mariners won 116 games and the A's won 102. If we don't want to go as extreme, look at the 2018 American League East when the Red Sox won 108, the Yankees won 100. I think that's what we're talking about with these two teams. Both are going to clear 100 wins. These probably will be the two best teams in baseball. Now, the Braves, the White Sox, there are other teams who could get in there for sure. But I think at the worst, these are two of the four best teams in baseball. And it's going to be very, very fun. I do think the Dodgers are still ahead, but the Padres have closed the gap. And this is an elite team that I do think will have some staying power. Last year was only a 60-game season. But I think you look at Tatis being out hurts. There's no question. But that's why you have depth and why you have – a loaded lineup. It's not just a one-man team. You have Will Myers, you have Manny Machado, you have Eric Hosmer, you have Tommy Pham. That's still a pretty good middle of the order. Jake Cronenworth looks really good early on. Trent Grisham just came off the IL, has a couple home runs already. If those two can be the best versions of themselves they showed in 2020, all of a sudden this is still a really good lineup. Ha Sung Kim defensively has been fine. He had a couple errors, but errors happen. He has the athleticism to handle short. The bat might be a little light to begin. There's an adjustment period, but if he's your eight-hole hitter and you have those other guys, the top seven, they'll be fine. So I I do think that they are going to compete. Obviously, having Fernando Tatis Jr. in the lineup makes them better than if they don't. But even if for any reason there's an extended absence, I still think this is a team that wins 90-plus games and wins a wild-card spot. Yeah, no, I agree. Moving into the rest of the West, there's a very clear tier here with these two teams at the top. Then you move into Giants, Diamondbacks, Rockies that are 
very clearly not in the same tier. I think there's some divisions you can say, oh, I can see a scenario where Team X jumps Team Y, even though Team Y appears to be better on paper. Can you see any scenario in which the Giants, Diamondbacks, or Rockies leapfrog either of the two teams at the top of this division? No, I don't think so. I think all of those teams come up short in one area or another, uh, you know, in particularly major league depth. You know, I can't touch either of those um, top two teams in the West. Yeah, one thing that I thought was disappointing early. So, Cattell Marte, I actually broke my paternity leave to go on the group Slack just to make this point. Cattell Marte showed up looking yoked. Whatever his off-season workout plan was, I want to get on that. He looked fantastic. The swing was great. He was off to a great start. We saw the strength playing in games. He had a home run against the Padres. You know, pitch on the outer half, just kind of threw his hands out there, kind of an out and around swing, didn't get his lower body into it all, and it went out to left field for a home run. Had a mm-hmm. single off the handle that just muscled out into the outfield. I mean, he looked like he was going to have a big, big bounce back here and be the MVP candidate that we saw him be in 2019. And then he got hurt. It's actually not, it's not a funny moment, but I was sitting with the newborn. I've basically been binge watching MLB.TV. Some people binge watch Netflix with a newborn just sleeping and eating on the couch. I've been binge watching MLB.TV. And at the exact moment that happened, I was uh, just sitting with her and I was watching the Rockies Diamondbacks game. And uh, she uh, did what newborns do and pooped and the diaper didn't hold it. And it Hmm. went all over me. (laughs) Dad moment. And Right around that exact moment, I was watching the D-backs Rockies game, could tell Marte blew out his hamstring. So it was a crappy moment more than one way, just no. simultaneously. <laughs> um, but no, could tell Marte. Baseball news, you can't get anywhere else. Yeah, I know, right? But anyway, that's, that's just a big blow. I will say one thing for the Diamondbacks that's been encouraging. Taylor Widener and Riley Smith have looked very, very good. Madison Bumgarner obviously has not. That contract continues to look more and more like an albatross, but... They're going to get Zach Gallen back. Luke Weaver took a no-hitter into the late innings yesterday against the Reds. Widener and Smith have looked good early. I do think there is some pitching here to work with. Merrill Kelly had a nice year last year. Offensively, without Cattell Marte, there's not a lot of thump in here. But at least there's a, a potential young pitching staff to work with. We're, and then on the Giants' side... There is a lineup here to work with. I do believe in Mike Yastrzemski. I do believe in Donovan Solano. I do believe in Alex Dickerson as long as he stays healthy. Long-term, you like Joey Bart. You like Elliot Ramos. You like Marco Luciano. They're just going to need to add arms. So I think you see with the Diamondbacks and Giants, they each have a piece, but they need to do some other things. The Diamondbacks need to add some bats. The Giants need to add some arms. And, and it's probably going to be a couple years before they're ready to compete with the Dodgers and Padres. But I don't think these are terrible teams. I do think there are things to work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Do you think the Rockies have something to work with? Because this was a disastrous offseason for the franchise, trading Nolan Arenado and then paying the Cardinals all of his salary for this year in that trade while not getting back any of the Cardinals' top 10 prospects or best young major leaguers. It really was stunning. We've talked about it ad nauseum. I mean, realistically, how far away, how many years are we talking before the Rockies forget the playoffs, just a winning record. When is realistically the next time the Rockies project to have a winning record if everything goes right? Yeah, baseball's hard to predict. You know, you wouldn't have predicted, you know, 
Blackman, Arenado, and Story forming a core of a playoff team either because they were good prospects but never seen as as great ones as they turned out to be. Um, but uh, I would say five years minimum because there's really there's nobody on the major league team now, um, perhaps with the exception of Ryan McMahon, you know, because Gray and Story are very, very strong possibilities to be traded this season. Um, the farm system is a bottom third farm system. Uh, you know, it, it's really, really difficult to see a path right now. I mean, maybe you have a more optimistic view than I do. Well, if the Detroit Tigers can lose 119 games and three years later be in the World Series, anything is possible. A lot can change in three years. What needs to happen for the Rockies is Herman Marquez, John Gray, Antonio Sanzatello, and Kyle Freeland all to be their best selves at the same time. That hasn't happened very often. It's been two of them are clicking, but two aren't. Uh, sometimes three, but not the key fourth guy. If all four of them are clicking at the same time, and, and Austin Gomber does some nice things, again, as a fifth starter, he's fine. I think there's a makings of a potential rotation that is good enough to keep them in games. Bullpen is not very good. That's a perennial problem for them. Lineup-wise, I would really like to see them just let Ryan McMahon play third base and Garrett Hampson play second base and just give them one position, their natural positions, and just focus on hitting. I don't think they've done them a lot of favors moving them around. They're jacking McMahon around from third to second back and forth, Hampson from center to second. I would like to see the Rockies just say, here's your one position, just worry about this and go ahead. And I think if they do that, we've seen Ryan McMahon get off to a really nice start, and I've believed in him for a while. I think he's a good player. I think if you just let him play third and Garrett Hampson play second, you'll see better performance from both of them. And realistically, that's the Rockies' best long-term team as well. It's Hampson at second, McMahon at third, assuming story leaves, Rogers at short, although we have to see what he looks like post-injury. That's the best team. I think they're trying to manufacture utility when they don't really need to. Well, the issue is going to be all these pitchers are going to be free agents long before the offense is competent. So I don't see any of these guys resigning unless the Rockies way, way overpay. They're and, all, they're all three, they're all three plus years of service and Gray's a pending free agent. And that's why it's going to be very, very, very difficult. I'm not going to say five years just because again, a lot can change in three, but it's hard to see it happening. I think three is the minimum and a lot of things need to go right for that to happen. So we'll see what they can do. And keep in mind, we're talking about a winning record. We're not talking about the postseason. We're talking about winning 82 games. So it's going to be tough. There's going to be some lean years here, but we'll see what they're able to do. If nothing else, having all these pitchers pitch to their peak ability, will at least bring them back some more in trades in the event they do need to make a trade because the John Gray of last year would not have fetched them very much in a trade. John Gray through two starts of this year probably would, but again, it's been two starts. Need to see him hold it up. So that's going to be what to watch in the NL West. Matt, the NL Central had four teams make the playoffs last year, but it was not a good division. You watch the quality of play. It was not a case of, oh, these are four really good teams. It was, these are four mediocre-ish teams just kind of beating up on one another. And they're all able to get some wins because of it. This was probably the worst division in baseball this year when you just look around the rest of the major leagues. At the same time, the Cardinals are a perennial contender. 
They added Nolan Arenado. The Brewers, I thought, had a sneaky good offseason, adding Colton Wong, adding Jackie Bradley Jr. to really shore up the defense. They've got two ace types at the front of the rotation of Brandon Woodruff and Corbin Burns. The offense isn't bad. It's not great, but it's not bad. And you assume Christian Yelich will bounce back. You get Lorenzo Cain back for the full year. I do think that this is a decent team. Who do you have in this division? Because I, I think it's close in either direction. Um, if, I, if I can recall, I think I picked Brewers just because I think the run prevention will be good enough for them to eke out enough offense um, and stay consistent throughout the year. But that's obviously pending the health of um, Woodruff and Burns in particular. Um, I think I had the Cardinals second. Um, what did you pick? I had the Cardinals. And you mentioned the injury risk with Burns and Woodruff. So the Brewers have a very good team when they're all healthy. There's not a lot of depth here. Uh, they do not have much in the way of a farm system either. So they are really, really, really reliant on all their guys staying healthy. And with all the question marks surrounding this year, it just feels a little more risky than the Cardinals who have a much better farm system, have more upper level minor league talent, have a deeper well of pitchers to draw from. I think that in the end is what is going to elevate the Cardinals at the same time. If the Brewers win this division, I wouldn't call it an upset. I just, I do think the Cardinals are the favorite, but it's close enough. I wouldn't classify the Brewers winning the division as an upset. Yeah, it is hard to, to bet against the Cardinals. I do like uh, I do like um, Craig Council's ability to get more from less, which he's demonstrated as the manager of the Brewers. So I, I guess a lot of my confidence is in him finding his way as well. Yeah, uh, there's no question that when it comes to running a bullpen, and especially at the end of seasons, uh, he's as good as it gets. And I think that's definitely an advantage. I will say I do like some of the Cardinals' young talent. Dylan Carlson has shown some power. He's actually – made some nice plays out in center field early in the season, particularly mm -hmm. going back to the wall, which I mean, those are the hardest plays for a relatively green center fielder. And for him to make them right off the bat has been very impressive. But we do need to see some of these guys stay healthy and effective. Adam Wainwright and Carlos Martinez have gotten rocked their first two starts. Daniel Ponce de Leon mm -hmm. as well. Uh, they're dealing with a and, lot of pitching and, injuries. And the outfield remains thin, aside from Carlson, who, who is a very intriguing prospect, yes. Yeah. One thing is the bullpen can really bring it. Alex Reyes is in the closer role. He's been pretty nailed so far. They have Jordan Hicks back. He's through four scoreless mm -hmm. innings, coming back from Tommy John surgery, although he does have a couple walks. Giovanni Gallegos, Henesis Cabrera. There's a lot of focus on the Brewers' bullpen, and deservedly so. The Cardinals have a lot of guys that can bring it as well, and I, I do think it's a case where if you look at the Cardinals' starting pitching depth, and I think the bullpen's – the gap is not as large as you might believe. I think the Cardinals have plenty of gas in the bullpen as well. I, I think it's going to be a fun fight. I think it's going to be fun to the end. We just need to see how it holds up over a full season, particularly in the case of the Brewers. Mm -hmm. Moving into the rest of the division, the Cubs are the defending National League Central champions. However, they traded you Darvish, and they are not hitting. The Cubs are a team that probably they didn't have the worst off season. There are other teams that had worse off seasons because they just completely pulled themselves out of contention with their moves. Uh, the Rays, the Indians, the A's, uh, we're talking about the Rockies. They had the worst move of any team this off season. 
But when you look at the Cubs, this is a team that is banking on a lot of veteran pitchers to have bounce back years. You feel good about Kyle Hendricks, the front of your rotation. You feel good about Zach Davies. You're banking on Trevor Williams and Jake Arrieta rediscovering some past magic. You're banking on Adbert Azale being the guy he showed at the end of last year and maintaining that over 162 games. And again, there's not a lot of depth here. If any of those pitchers don't live up to that expectation or someone gets hurt, they're in real trouble. But one of the more concerning developments, again, it's very, very early. Cubs fans are panicking. I think it's too early to panic. The Cubs offense has been atrocious early in the season. When you look at this team, Matt, what's more realistic that they stay around the fringes of contention and, and make a wild card or end up trading everyone at the deadline? Hmm. Great question. Um, I think it's more realistic that they <clears throat> snap back to a um, playoff contention position. Uh I think, the, yeah, when you look at the, the names in the lineup, you know, they're all at the right age. They have, they've established peak ability that I think they will regress to their career norms and be competitive. Yeah, the return of in-game video in particular, that's something a lot of players talked about. And you look at Javi Baez, you look at Chris Bryant, I think those two guys, you definitely feel good about bouncing back, particularly with the return of in-game video, Anthony Rizzo as well. Jock Peterson is an upgrade over Kyle Schwarber in a lot of different ways. Uh, there are enough bats here that look, they're not going to hit a buck 50 for the whole season as we've seen them do this first week at the same time, losing as feebly as they did to the pirates. It wasn't a great look early in the season. Uh, You go back and this team, when they were really, really rolling in 2016, they were the third highest scoring team in baseball, 2017. They were the second highest scoring team in baseball. I mean, They had star offensive players who delivered, you know, 2018, again, a year they took a step back. They were still a top 10 offense in terms of runs scored. We saw it last year. They were not a great offense in a lot of ways. I mentioned it that I really didn't like the matchup for them, the Marlins in the postseason, because the Cubs really struggled with velocity last year. And that's the Marlins specialty with Sandy Alcantara and Sixto Sanchez. I'm expecting a bounce back for the Cubs this year, but it is worth watching. And this was a team that finished 20th in the majors and runs scored last year. They really, really are counting on bounce backs that, again, it's been ugly early. It's also been less than 10 games. It's just, I I understand why Cubs fans are nervous after how rough it was last year. Seeing a team come out in their first nine games, average less than three runs a game and hit a buck 67 it's not the look you want to see early. Yeah, you make some good points. And then you lose one or two of those starting pitchers. Uh, maybe, maybe there could be some selling going on on the north side. I think reasonably they could win 84 games. And with a couple breaks here or there, maybe grab the second wild card. It's going to be really, really tough in the National League. But I also see a scenario where things fall apart and get to the deadline and they're hovering around 500 or a little under it, and they pull the plug. So that's going to be one of the the storylines to watch for the season, especially in the Central. The Reds are off to a really fast start. They actually have the highest scoring offense in baseball, which was a bugaboo for them last year. But again, we're nine games in. There's a lot of season left to be played. Are you buying the Reds' hot start? Yes, I do. I do like their lineup, even with their struggles last year. They were ineffective last year offensively but I think you look at the names and the way they fit together they should be fine offensively and I think um you know the tutelage of pitching coach Derek Johnson 
the, the pitching staff is going to continue to be um, a, a contender as well. I'm just checking where they are right now. They're roughly average right now in terms of pitching, but I think they'll hold that line or, or improve. I like the talent they have assembled there. Yeah, you feel really good about starting three with Sonny Gray, Luis Castillo, and Tyler Maley. Again, re-signing Trevor Bauer at $40 million was, was never in the cards. It was not the right thing for this franchise. I'm going to be very curious to see what they can do with Jeff Hoffman and Jose DeLeon. Derek Johnson, as you mentioned, has earned a reputation as one of the best pitching coaches in Major League Baseball if not the best, again, there's a lot of really good pitching coaches out there. I think you look at Brent Strom's track record and he probably still has that title, but Derek Johnson is certainly in the conversation. Hoffman and DeLeon have shown good stuff at times. They've never been able to do anything consistently. Some of that's been injury related, particularly in DeLeon's case. They've each come out this year. They've had a good start. They've had a bad start. So we'll see what they end up being, but it's something I'm watching just to see what the Reds can maybe unlock with those guys. And they're going to need their pitchers to miss bats because this defense is going to be problematic. You have Eugenio Suarez at shortstop. Nick Senzel has improved in center field, but it's still just okay out there in scout's eyes. This is a this is a defense that makes the Mets look like gold lovers. <laughs> so that that is one thing to watch. Again, are the Reds going to be in first place at the end of the year? I'm not going to bet on that. But there's enough frontline pitching here, and if some of these hitters perform to the level they're capable of, as we've seen, you know, Eugenio Suarez and Mike Moustakas and Jonathan India has been. One of the early stories of the season after a sensational spring training, he's carried it into the first week of the season. You look at the bounce back of Tyler Naquin. I mean, Jesse Winker, Nick Castellanos, these are good hitters. I think they have a chance to be respectable. I'm not going to pick them to jump the Cardinals or the Brewers, but can they finish in third place ahead of the Cubs? Yeah, I, I absolutely think that's possible. And if the Brewers lose Burns and or Woodruff, could they sneak up even higher? It's not the craziest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, and, and the farm system is at least good, you know. So there, there could be some reinforcement during the season. Uh, you know, maybe Jose Garcia, the shortstop, figures it out and helps the defense in the second half of the season. Uh, and, and they have some other major league ar- or some prospect arms with proximity. Yeah, you know, again, Sonny Gray hasn't pitched yet. He's going to come off the DL. They also haven't had Michael Lorenzen. He's out with the shoulder strain. When he gets back, he'll bolster the team. Uh, Shogo Akiyama, who is a pretty good defensive outfielder, uh, he's been out with a hamstring injury, but when he gets back, that'll help. So there are some pieces here to work with. We just kind of have to see how it all holds up over a full season. Matt, I'm going to ask you the same thing about the Pirates as well as the Rockies. How far away are they? What year are we looking at before the Pirates have a winning record? I think they're on a similar timeline. Um, I think the, the farm system is better and they're going to have the number one pick this year and potentially next year. So I think their timeline is at least a year, if not two ahead of where the Rockies are at. And they've already begun trading some major leaguers for prospects that they value. So I think, you know, best case three years, but more realistically four or five. Yeah. I'm going to lean on the uh, rebuilds research I did a few years ago for us at BA. Four years, check back in 2025. That's where they are. We'll see what happens again. I think Brian Reynolds getting back to the form he showed in 2019 is certainly positive. He's a good hitter. He's someone to keep. Mitch Keller had a nice start the other day. 
Cabrian Hayes obviously is a very, very impressive young player. So there are some people to build around, but yeah, they're at the bottom of the rebuild. It's going to be a while. For the next playoff team, I think Hayes is the only guy who's going to be on the next playoff team. I'll put it that way. Really? Not Keller or Reynolds? They're good. I just think they're going to be, you know, service timed or aged out of being a part of the next uh, playoff team. Okay. I, I'm going to take those guys being part of the next playoff team, but I get your point that this is not a two-year-away type of rebuild. It's it's four years. Again, check, check back in 2025. That's all I can really say about where they are. Matt, we're going to dive into the NL East, which is probably going to be the most entertaining division. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. All right, Matt, the National League East is probably the most competitive division in the National League and arguably Major League Baseball. You have four teams that have playoff aspirations and realistically have a path to them. And even the fifth place team was a playoff team last year. Again, shortened season, but I would say they're probably the best of the last place teams in, well, not only nationally, they might be the best last place teams in baseball. When you look at the National League East, does anyone clearly separate from the other teams, and how do you see this playing out? Well, I think the Braves on paper, you know, they haven't played up to it yet, but this is a very deep and talented roster. Um, to me, they would be the class of the East, but so far it hasn't really been that. You know, they're four and five, but I think more significantly they're you know below average offensively. and also below average pitching. So if, if those come back up to expected levels, I think, yeah, this, this is the team that would be the, the most balanced and the potentially the most effective. Well, the bullpen has been pretty good early. I mean, they're 10th in the majors right now in ERA. So there's certainly good arms here. I, I do think the Mike Stroke injury is concerning, especially given mm-hmm. his history, but they have a depth of arms. They have a really, really, really good lineup. Again, it's been a slow start. I'm not tripping. This is not a team that's going to hit 214 with a 269 on base percentage the entire year as they have through nine games. This is a really, really good offense. And I do feel like they're the favorite. However, can I see the Mets winning the division? Absolutely. Although it really is starting to become, I mean, inexplicable how frequently Jacob deGrom pitches exceptionally well and comes out of it, not only not with a no decision, but a loss. I mean, the, the last outing against the Marlins, to come out of that with an L next to your name, I just shake your head. Yeah, tough, a tough luck pitcher. Um, yeah, I... I haven't seen anybody really dig into that. Like what are the psychological factors that might be at play or what, what, what is going on there? Cause it does seem aberrational. I do think that there's definitely, I mean, it's gotten to a point where, yeah, hitters are absolutely thinking about it. They're definitely tightening up a little bit. This has become, it's become a narrative because it's been the reality. I mean, they just have not scored when he's on the mound and it's something that, certainly grates on him. It grates on the players. They get asked about it all the time. They're definitely thinking about it. It's, it really is kind of crazy. I will say that give Trevor Rogers credit. This is a very, very talented young pitcher, top 100 prospect. I liked him since I saw him in Greensboro. 
he went out there. He was dotting 96, 97 on the edges, held the Mets scoreless, six innings, 10 punch outs against a really good offense. Give him credit and give the Marlins bullpen credit. But, I mean, Jacob deGrom is allowed one run in two starts, and the Mets are 0-2 in those two starts. <laughs> it's just, uh, what do you do? I, I will say that I do think the Mets have the horses offensively. You add in the return of Marcus Stroman. You add in the signing of Taiwan Walker. You add in acquiring Joe Lucchese. It was a nice depth addition for the rotation. Potentially, you get the midseason return of Noah Syndergaard. There will be a good rotation here. And also, we have to find out if the Edwin Diaz of 2020 is going to show up or the Edwin Diaz of 2019, because we've all seen Mets bullpens blow a lot of games from in the past. And that, to me, is probably the biggest question mark, which Edwin Diaz we're going to get and and which Mets bullpen we're going to get. Yeah, (laughs) I would say so. Yeah, and it's probably difficult to to overstate how jarring the season, the beginning of their season has been by missing the first series when everybody else plays because of the Nationals' COVID uh, infections and then having a a game rained out on the weekend that they started. So there's just been all these stops and starts, and it's, it's got to be tough to, to find a rhythm under those circumstances. So you're saying you're not panicking over a two and three start? <laughs> um, no, the typical amount of panic. <laughs> Again, I do think these are the two best teams in the National League. I picked the Braves in the National League East, excuse me. I picked the Braves to win the division. I picked the Mets to win a wild card. The team I picked for my surprise team this year was the Phillies. This is a team that actually has a pretty good offense, has a pretty good starting rotation. You know, Nola, Wheeler, Zach Eflin took a step forward. You know, how much are you really going to get from Matt Moore and Chase Anderson? Who knows? but there's a little bit of depth here with those guys. You have Spencer Howard, you have Vince Velasquez as a bright glass in case of emergency guy. So I do think you have the offensive star power. You do have a really good trio atop your rotation and enough guys you can fill in the blanks at the back. And I thought that their bullpen additions this off season were very, very, very sneakily huge upgrades getting Archie Bradley. Uh, The Jose Alvarado trade was a steal. I still don't understand why the Rays did that. Even bringing in Brandon Kinsler. And we saw during the opening series of the year, the Phillies formula for success. Wheeler, Nola, Eflin give you six, seven innings, and then some combination of Bradley, Alvarado, and Neris each go one inning, and that's it. That's the game. You're in good shape if you do that. Connor Brogdon has emerged and been a nice option as well. So really what hit the Phillies last year was the world's worst bullpen. I mean, this was the worst bullpen in modern baseball history. I believe Jason Stark went back and found it's the worst since I believe 1915 or 16. But we're talking over a hundred years here. But then it stopped the 2019 nationals. They had an awful bullpen. (laughs) True. But they, they, (laughs) Until, until the end, even they weren't as bad as, uh, as the Phillies were. So I think they upgraded enough. They found that winning formula. Now, Archie Bradley going down with an injury hurts a lot. I think that's a really, really tough blow for them. You hope it's not too long because all of a sudden, then more falls on Alvarado, Neris, and Brogdon. You feel a lot better if Archie Bradley is part of that equation. But at the very least, I do think this is the year the Phillies finally 
finally have a winning season. They have not had a winning record since 2011. They've had some records where they're 500, but they have not had a winning record since 2011. I do feel like at the end of this season, they will have a winning record, whether that's 84 wins and comfortably in third place or 88, 89, 90 wins and potentially competing for the second wildcard spot. It's just going to depend on health, but there is talent here. And I I thought that they addressed their biggest deficiency very, very well. And they did strike me as the potential surprise team in major league baseball this year. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. They have, you know, the lineup is, is deep. It can play with the other lineups in this division. So, you know, like you're saying, the, the rotation and bullpen stability will be key. Matt, the Nationals obviously won the World Series in 2019. 2020, they finished tied for last in the National League East. A lot of that was Steven Strasburg got hurt. Uh, a lot of their guys did not perform offensively. It was an older team that suddenly looked very old. Patrick Corbin took a step back. Max Scherzer was not as dominant. Sean Doolittle took a step back. He's now in Cincinnati. They went out this offseason, were fairly aggressive. They went out, they acquired Josh Bell and what I thought was one of the, the biggest steel trades of the offseason. They signed Kyle Schwarber. That was a deal that didn't make a ton of sense given they're a National League club. And I know they might have been expecting the DH to come back, but that's a big risk to take before you know it's coming back. This is the team that defensively is going to struggle, but the offense is pretty good top to bottom or has potential to be I should say and if you get full seasons of health from Scherzer Strasburg and Corbin you add John Lester return of Joe Ross there's a chance this is a decent rotation the COVID-19 issues obviously set them back Uh, it's very very concerning for these guys independent of the game just their general health you hope everyone comes back healthy with no long-term effects if they all come back and if they are playing at full strength, is this a team that's good enough to get back to the postseason? Oh yeah, I mean anything can happen in baseball. They have they have the star power. Um, you know, it might require some stumbling from other teams, especially when you factor in the Nationals are starting one and five. But you know, granted, they did this before in 2019, and they've been playing several players down. So you don't want to draw any firm conclusions about their early play. Um, but yeah, they they're gonna need to, they're gonna need to make start making a move pretty soon. One of the more interesting breakout candidates that I gather just talking to scouts at spring training was Victor Robles. This is someone that the Nationals and a lot of other people thought would be a, a franchise caliber center fielder, hit at the top of the order, steal a lot of bases, play great defense, hit for average, and it just hasn't happened yet. Uh, he's been a below average offensive performer, however you want to measure it. There was a sense from evaluators watching him this spring that he'd taken a jump. He's still young. He's not even 24 yet. So this is by no means a finished product. I do feel like he's one of the keys to the season for them because you feel good about Trey Turner. You definitely feel good about Juan Soto. Josh Bell, I do think, is in for a big bounce back type of year. What are you going to get from Starling Castro and Josh Harrison at this point in their career? It was certainly disappointing that Carter Keboom and Luis Garcia were not able to break camp with the team. There is not a lot of depth here. This is a team very, very reliant on who's in the majors and maybe a couple guys on the alt side. We've talked about it. This is the worst farm system in baseball. By a very, very wide margin, you have two very good pitchers at the top in Cade Cavalli and Jackson Rutledge. 
And after that, it's a lot of low-level lottery tickets. I don't want to say they don't have much to trade because the cost of acquiring impact big leaguers has become so jokingly low that anyone can do it, as we saw with their trade for Josh Bell. They got him for not much at all. But they do need these guys to stay healthy and perform to their abilities to make the postseason. This isn't a team, you know, you look at the Padres, you look at the Dodgers, you look at even the Braves and Mets to a better degree, I think, than the Nationals, where you say, okay, if a couple guys get hurt, they still have some options. There's some depth here. The Nationals don't have that. It needs to be these guys performing. I think that's fair. Lastly, the Marlins are a last place team in this division by most expectations. However, they did make the playoffs last year and they boast one of the most promising young rotations in major league baseball. Sandy Alcantara, I picked as my breakthrough pitcher this year. He's really, really good. He continues to look really, really good. I think he's going to take a jump and be a top 10 NL Cy Young voting type this year. Pablo Lopez is Criminally underrated, very, very good. Trevor Rogers, we've talked about. I'm a big fan. I know you're a fan as well. This is a very, very good pitcher that I think is going to be a staple in the Marlins rotation for a long time. And Sixto Sanchez is our top-ranked pitching prospect in baseball. The concern with him has always been injuries, and he's now hurt, so we need to see what it looks like when he comes back. But the Marlins have shown the ability to really identify pitching prospects and develop them, whether it's they acquire them in trades or they draft them. You talk about those guys we mentioned, Zach Gallon, Trevor Richards, Nick Anderson, Elise Hernandez, a lot of these guys they've picked up and have done pretty well for themselves. So I think you feel really good about the Marlins and their pitching development as they enter the Kim Ang era. It's going to be about the bats. We've seen so many of their young hitters just not make enough contact. Lewis Brinson, Monty Harrison, Ison Diaz, a lot is riding on this next wave to do so. Jazz Chisholm, Jesus Sanchez, because there's not a lot of long-term offensive pieces here, either in the majors or in their farm system. If you want to argue Brian Anderson is, is the only long-term offensive piece they have right now, I I wouldn't fight you on that. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think that you know, Chisholm is, looks really fantastic. You know, um, He's doing a lot of things really well. Electric, electric everything. <laughs> Uh, and then you mentioned Jesus Sanchez, who's injured, but I do agree. He's somebody who could pop this year. Uh, same with Lewin Diaz at first base. Um, and JJ, JJ Blade, potentially. You might see him later in the year. And that, these are all left-handed hitters, which is what the Marlins desperately need. They're a very right-handed team right now. Again, Starling Marte is still a darn good player. Corey Dickerson, Jesus mm-hmm. Aguilar can hit. They have some guys who can hit a little bit, but these are older guys. When you look at what is the Marlins lineup going to look like the next time they're competitive, I shouldn't say next time they're competitive, the next time they are consistently expected to win games and be in the top half of this division, it's going to be a lot of the young players. Jazz Chisholm, as you mentioned, my individual looks at him have been great over the years, including in the Arizona Fall League. I know you like a lot of the underlying metrics, the impact on contact. It's always just been about how much contact is he going to make. That's been high strikeout rates at pretty much every level he's been at. But 
He's very, very young. He comes from a non-traditional baseball background. And just given that context, it's been pretty impressive how quickly he's climbed and some of the skills and ability he's shown. I saw him take a a 100-mile-an-hour fastball off of the Mets the other day and park it into uh, the upper deck at the field. Well, that's the thing. That's the microcosm of what he can be. He took a DeGrom fastball to the upper deck on an 0-2 count. I mean, that pretty much sums up Jazz Chisholm to me. Yeah, and there's a lot of ability there. So I think just ensuring he makes enough contact, that's going to be the key. And again, the Marlins have have had trouble with that, taking these super athletic, really, really talented young hitters and helping them make enough contact to be effective. But if they can turn that around, that to me is the key to the Marlins becoming not just a team with good young pitchers, but they never really put it together and a team that is consistently winning games and threatening for a playoff spot and making sure that last year's 60 game showing was not just a a one and done type deal. All right, Matt. So we've run down the divisions. I do want to ask, I mentioned the Phillies as my surprise team. Who's your surprise team in here? Because every year there's always a team no one sees coming and ends up doing pretty well for themselves. Hmm. Are the Reds surprising? I guess I'm just looking at teams who might be in the wild card race who we're not expecting. The Reds would probably be, would be my pick. Um, They look pretty good. Certainly off to a nice start. Again, I think it's something where seeing how it all unfolds over the course of a season and staying healthy. We talked about the nationals and their top line guys, the reds farm system is not as bad as the nationals. They, they do have some guys they can call up and lean on. I have long liked Tyler Stevenson. He's in the majors. There's definitely some depth here, but at the same time, it's not like this is a super duper loaded farm system. They're going to need their core guys to, really, really, really keep performing to the level they have been. And then particularly on the pitching side, getting as much as you can out of Hoffman De Leon will help. Again, you have the top three we talked about when Gray comes back. Wade Miley's in the mix. They talked about having Michael Lorenzen be a starter. We'll see what he's able to do when he comes back from his injury. So there's definitely some potential there. And I'll be curious to see. And Lord knows they're in the right division. That's the other key here. It's not just about them. It's about who else is around them. And as we mentioned, the NL Central is the weakest division in Major League Baseball this year. Yeah, I kind of look at it half glass full or glass half full being that they kind of manufactured TJ Antone and Tyler Malley into Major League starting pitchers, which is phenomenal. I mean, Malley coming into last, prior to 2020, had a career 488 ERA. He was not viewed as a rotation staple. So, Yeah, that's a fair point. We've talked about it. Derek Johnson is one of the best pitching coaches in baseball, arguably the best. Uh, David Bell's a well-respected manager who has done some good things early on. So good coaching, good instruction can go a long ways, and we'll see what they're able to do. Matt, I wanted to ask you this because you are king of breakout players. I had talked with JJ on a spring training podcast a few weeks ago about an under-the-radar MVP candidate. Every year there's guys who – pretty much are consensus picks, but then there's always someone who we know is a really, really good player, but for whatever reason, we don't pick as an MVP contender. Freddie Freeman's a great example of that last year. He's a bona fide star, no question about it, but for whatever reason, he wasn't someone that was getting a lot of preseason MVP votes, and then actual season gets played. He's pretty clearly the MVP. 
To me, Corey Seager is that guy this year. I talked about how he really clicked back into place last year, carried it through the postseason, looked great in spring training. I do think this is the best version of Corey Seager, and the best version of Corey Seager, as we saw in 2016-17, was not just one of the best young players in baseball, was one of the best players in baseball. He was fifth in Fangraph's war among all players, all position players, 2016-2017. Who's your sleeper MVP pick? Who's a guy that maybe isn't being talked about, but you know is really good and would not surprise you to be in that mix? Well, Seager is a great one. Um, Juan Soto would, you know, from now until he retires. Everyone's picking him. Do you think he's, you know, there are people out there who are being bold and picking him to win the triple crown. And I mean, it sounds crazy because triple crowns are exceedingly rare. And that's why when some people tried to, denigrate Miguel Cabrera's accomplishment of it a few years ago. It was really baffling to me. And I say that as the biggest Mike Trout defender in the world. I mean, it sounds insane to say someone can or will do it, but if you look around Major League Baseball today, he certainly seems like the guy most capable of it. Uh, Yeah, I I would agree with that. Um, Off the board, it's a little tougher. I mean, you look at the Padres. um, (laughs) As much as I like Cronenworth and Grisham, that's kind of hard to throw that on those guys. Uh, you know, with the Mets, he's off to a slow start. You know, I think Conforto has a high offensive ceiling. He's going to need to hit, you know, 300 like he did last year over a full season to reach that. But no, I think Seager for me would be the best, would be the best pick. Or Nick Castellanos with the Reds, another guy who could put together four plus months, good enough to get into the MVP race. He's always hit. He's a really, really, really good hitter. Uh, He's off to a great start this year, and we'll see what he's able to do. Matt, any final thoughts on the National League? I know you picked the Dodgers to represent the League in the World Series. I picked the Dodgers to represent the League in the World Series. I absolutely think it's possible that the Potters get there, that the Braves get there. By no means is it a slam dunk, but I do think the Dodgers are the best team. Any thoughts for you? I mean, it, it does seem like it's... Braves, Potters, Dodgers is probably the group it's going to come from. But as we talked about, there are other teams who you can craft a path, at least semi-plausibly. Yeah, I agree. I think those are the top three. Um, and then it'll be an epic uh, National League postseason field. Do you want to know a sleeper MVP candidate? You mentioned the Padres, and you know who's a sleeper? If I were to ask you who had the highest OPS in the Padres last year, you'd probably answer Manny Machado or Fernando Tatis Jr. You was it Osmer? Be... No, it was Will <laughs> no. Myers. Okay. Will Myers had the highest OPS of any Padres player last year. He's really, really, really taken to this new coaching staff. He's been locked in. He's off to a great start this year. I mean, if you want to go deep sleeper, that might be the guy. I'm, I'm not going to pick it to happen, but – interesting and he looks great Hosmer looks great that might be your deep sleeper again higher OPS than Machado and Tatis last year and I don't think a lot of people realize that by the way Matt we didn't get just to talk about it the streak is over all 30 teams now have a no hitter you lived through it with the Mets for many 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 years not having a no hitter Johan Santana finally did the trick Potters are the last team Joe Musgrove, the San Diego native. I think the best moment of the season so far has been Trey Mancini's return. I think the second mm-hmm. best moment of the season so far has been Joe Musgrove, San Diego kid from Grossmont High School. 
throwing the first no-hitter. The Padres leaving him in. They're playing that exactly right. I was glad to see that. Just an awesome special moment. And really the circumstances were perfect because they were playing an American League team. They didn't have to worry about pinch hitting for him in a close game. <laughs> I think everything really came together. Well, the circumstances were great too because it was the Rangers who don't have a good offense. <laughs> that is very, very, very true. So, Which is, which is often the way no-hitters are accomplished. It's not a slight against Musgrove, but... Well, that's why the Padres have been the victim of many, many, many no-hitters in recent <laughs> years. But uh, for them to finally get one was a great moment. For it to be Joe Musgrove especially made it extra special for a lot of people. And uh, just a great moment for him. And so far, one of the most exciting moments early in the season. Matt, any final thoughts before we wrap up here? Nope. No, thank you. All right. Well, that'll do it. Thank you so much for joining us on National League uh, Look Ahead podcast, if you will. Once again, everyone, go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Matt Eddy, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.